This is History West Midlands. Most histories of evacuation during the Second World War focus on the experiences, good and bad, of the children. As a result, the experiences and emotions of women have been overshadowed and often forgotten. A new book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, by Professor Maggie Andrews of Worcester University, has begun to address this issue. She has spent months in archives reading correspondence between mothers and children, as well as other family members, studying official documents and newspaper reports, and listening to oral histories and memories of many of those who experienced evacuation. In this programme, Professor Andrews tells the publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs, about the experiences of the women who open their homes to care for evacuated children. In your new book, Maggie, you talk about mothers who waved goodbye as their children were evacuated from the towns and cities to the countryside. You talk about mothers who went with those children in some cases. The third area which I found particularly fascinating was the foster mothers who looked after the children, and in some cases the mothers as well, who were evacuated to the countryside, yet they seemed to be forgotten. What brought it to your mind? I think it's a fascinating group of people, the foster mothers. They bore the brunt of the evacuation policy. It was them who had to look after children, who had to do the washing and the cleaning and the caring. And it was a huge, huge task. It was them who no longer had the right to say whether their home was their own or who came into their home. And the vast majority of them did it with an incredibly good heart, very caring and loving towards these children. And although it's in many, many respects forgotten, there is that lovely, lovely bit at the beginning of the relatively new Paddington film, where Paddington, before he sets off to Britain, is told by his aunt that there was once a war, thousands of children were sent away, left at railway stations with labels round their necks and unknown families took them in and loved them like their own. And I think that's a wonderful description for the vast majority of foster mothers and a wonderful reminder of what they did. What do you think motivated these women to become foster mothers? There were a wide variety of motivations as ever. Now, some of them, it was the child they'd never had. There were childless couples, there were women who hadn't got married, and they were just delighted to have a child to look after. And some of them actually write in Staffordshire, they're writing to the local authorities saying, please give us an evacuee because we've been trying to adopt and haven't been able to. That raises some interesting questions, but it's that desperation to have and look after a child. Some were motivated by, you know, this is the war effort and this is the thing that we can really do for the war effort. So they're full of patriotic enthusiasm. Some are a bit patronising, condescending, that they think this is going to be something whereby they're going to improve these urban children. They're going to look after them, they're going to spread their nice, often lower middle class values onto them and this is going to be very positive. Others see it much more in terms of a job. So you do have these women who literally turn their homes 
into little children's homes. They have 11 or 12 children that they take in and look after for the war. And I think some did have a bit of a financial incentive in them. It's one of those things that if you looked after a foster child really well, you were probably out of pocket. And if you did it rather meanly, you could be well into pocket. So there was all those sort of mixtures of motivations that came along. And some just had a kind heart. They just took one look at these children, forlorn, lost, in difficulties, and they wanted to help. How universal was this positive response to taking children into the home? It was fairly widespread in 1939. As the war progresses and the need to take in evacuees is greater because there's more bombing, I have to say it reduces quite dramatically. But to begin with, it was fairly widespread, though you do get villagers who are just hoping there won't be any. You get people who have all sorts of, some of them perfectly legitimate reasons why they personally shouldn't have to have any. You get villagers which think it will be better to rent a house and put all the evacuees in there with somebody looking after them. So you do get a good bit of resistance in some areas. And as the time goes on, that resistance grows quite massively. I think those who recorded how people responded at the time indicate that there are some very mixed responses going on. Mass observation looking at just one Norfolk village gives an indication of this. Excitement, annoyance and worry in village, owing to the expected evacuated children tomorrow. We're not having any if possible. And what was the profile of the children who mothers expected to foster and how close to reality was that view? I think in most people's minds, they were going to look after children of junior school, young secondary school age. I think many rural women could not imagine sending tiny tots away. And then actually, when evacuation happens, there are a large number of five-year-olds, even four-year-olds, who go six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, children who are quite young, children who are liable to wet the beds, children who are not really independent in the way that older children are. And some of them relished that and mothered them to bits. And others, particularly those who hadn't any experience of having children themselves, found it just beyond their capabilities. They really couldn't manage. Mass observation, once again, summarises this. Most people took it rather for granted that unaccompanied children would be about 10 to 14, and most of them are 5 to 10 and require a lot more looking after than was expected. Generally, were individual children fostered, or was it groups who came to stay? I think it was quite varied. Very often they put at least two children together. Sometimes more, you have some with three or four or five, all sitting around the kitchen table together. I think it was much easier to cope with a couple of children, and then you can shoo them off to play together, and then they, it doesn't feel quite so isolating for those children when they're put to bed in a strange place. For some women, having a group of youngsters was really something that lightened their wartime. Most of the hostesses in the village seem content with their foster children, I am, of course, speaking only for myself when I say that my six boys are making this dreary, lonely war not only tolerable, but often enjoyable. Many of these rural families must have been relatively poor. 
What strains did it put on foster mothers from that viewpoint? I think the strains were huge. I think often in the popular imagination, you associate evacuation with the lion, the witch and the wardrobe and being put in these great houses. The vast, vast majority of children were in really poor working class homes where they don't have running water, they don't have facilities to do washing easily. The children are often quite traumatised, upset, not unreasonably. They've been taken from home. They didn't know where to. They're not familiar with the food, the accents, the whole environment in which they're in. They could wet the bed every night. Very many of them had all sorts of diseases and illnesses by the time they arrived. They could be quite truculent, not unreasonably. They could give the foster mothers a sense that they were being watched and judged and valued all the time, particularly when the parents came down. And they just added massively to their domestic workload in a way that I think is often ignored. And what was the relationship generally between the foster mothers and the actual mothers and families? Some of the children's biological mothers had a wonderful relationship with the foster mothers, really appreciated them were aware that this huge amount of caring had made a massive difference to their children and had kept them safe. Others were much more anxious about things, tended to interfere. Sometimes they sent things that were helpful. Sometimes they were just sending lots of instructions and restrictions and things that they wanted done or not done, which the foster mothers felt was an interference in their home and in their care. And there were real tensions about things like religion, for instance. So we have lots of the Catholic mothers of Liverpool absolutely horrified if their foster mothers in parts of rural Staffordshire take the children to chapel on a Sunday or send them off to Sunday school with everybody else because this will just make their life easier. So I think there could be real tensions there. And I think it made those foster mothers really feel quite watched and criticised. I think there was also a lot of tension about who paid for what. Theoretically speaking, new clothes and things were supposed to be provided by the children's biological parents. But often it was very difficult to get in touch with them, or they didn't send the money when it was required. And so a lot of resentment built up that actually these foster mothers were doing all the work and the cost and the care of children, while maybe in their minds... The children's natural mothers were off swanning around, having a great time, earning well in the towns, maybe in munitions. Whether that was true or not is, in a sense, irrelevant. In people's minds, there was quite a lot of resentment from each side towards the other. And the relationship between the children and the foster mothers? Varied. I mean, some, it clearly was the making of them. The warmth with which they described the foster mothers, the way in which the foster mothers and the foster families became like an extended family in the way that aunts and uncles do, and often they would call them auntie and uncle. I had become the daughter auntie and uncle did not have, and I know that they missed me very much. However, I did go to auntie and uncle's during my next school holiday, and it remained my second home for the rest of my childhood. They would have relationships that went on for years afterwards, going back in the holidays and so forth, some of them, of course, were adopted, never returned home. The vast majority seemed to get on okay with them. Some formed wonderful relationships and some clearly hated their guts and made it clear. So there was a real mixture that occurred in there. I mean, some children 
were clearly aware of the huge effort that their foster mothers were putting into caring for them. But whatever was done, they didn't like it. <laughs> Makes sense, because they were homesick. And I think that must have felt very demoralising for the foster mothers. They were trying their best. They were going to great lengths. There are stories that people who bought them little dogs, gave them new clothes, all sorts of things. And still the child was homesick and all it wanted was to go back to the danger zones. One of the things that shaped the relationship between foster mothers and the children they were looking after was the sort of homes they'd come from. To some kids who had come from very difficult homes, very poverty-stricken homes, the new environment in which they were now living was just wonderful, as we can see from Albert Cross remembering when he got to Leek. I fell in love with Leek the moment I got off the train, really, walking up Broad Street. I thought it very nice, and the more I saw of it, the more I liked it. I still do. So when the authorities were placing children with foster parents, did they in any way take account of the social background, the class, if you like, of the child and the foster parent, or was there an awful lot of mismatch? No, it's fascinating that I think partly because of the rush that often evacuation was done in, when you look at government schemes, there was none of that careful matching up between the child and the home that they were going into. What's different is the vast quantity of private evacuations that were done where exactly that's happening, where it's friends of friends or a relation and so forth, and they do exactly that sort of matching. They're trying to place their child with someone that they think the child will feel familiar and comfortable with. And so you do get lots of examples of that. There's wonderful letters. The child who's sent from Brighton in 1940-41 up to the Midlands. And this is a friend of a friend. There are lots of letters that go to and fro between the natural mother and the foster mother beforehand. The natural mother comes up to visit the child and sees how they're getting on, is really pleased about it all. This is a very different sort of thing from the government scheme where they're just frantically trying to find billets for them. And when you look back at the end of the war on the success of the scheme, what do we see? When we look back, we can see that the vast quantity of evacuations were really, really successful, that lots of these mothers did a huge amount of work looking after these children and that the children became happier and healthier and were kept safe by this. At the time, there was an enormous amount written, particularly in the 1939 to 40 period, which comes from just put upon horrified, irritated foster mothers who are saying things about the children they're looking after or their mothers, which just make our toes curl. And an example of this is the Staffordshire Federation of Women's Institutes. The country householder has been magnificent in the way she has buckled to her problems. But she will need the strength and cheerfulness of 10 if she is to come through. By the end of the war, I think those who are looking after children are the ones who are very happy to be looking after children. Those who are resisting it, resent it, have managed to get out of it one way or another. The government and voluntary organisations have done much more to support people in looking after evacuees. So by the end of the war, there's a real acknowledgement and appreciation of the huge amount of work that has been done by the foster mothers 
and they all receive a postcard from the Queen, which thanks them for their efforts. And she says to them, In the early days of the war, you opened your doors to strangers who were in need of shelter and offered to share your home with them. I know that to this unselfish task, you've sacrificed much of your own comfort and that it could not have been achieved without the loyal cooperation of all in your household. By your sympathy, you've earned the gratitude of those to whom you've shown hospitality. And by your readiness to serve, you've helped the state in a work of great value. And I think it's fascinating to realise how, at the end of the war, the work done by these foster mothers is being acknowledged as part of war service. And yet, in the years that have gone on, they've sort of disappeared out of memory compared to so many other people who did things in the war. Maggie, thank you for bringing these very valiant women on the home front to our attention. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. In other programmes in this series, Professor Andrews reveals the experiences of mothers who waved goodbye to their children as they were evacuated and those who left their homes and families to travel with their young children. You can listen to these often heart-rending stories in our free app, HWM On Air, in the iStore. Or find them on our website, www.historywm.com, along with hundreds of other films and podcasts, all for free. Professor Maggie Andrews' book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, published by Bloomsbury Academic, is available in bookshops and from Amazon. (laughs) 